This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Ah, yes, the Securities and Exchange Commission unveiling some changes, uh, restrictions on Wall Street conflicts. That's where the changes come in. And they're said to be softer than those imposed under the Obama administration. What you need to know, let's bring in our own Ben Bain, financial regulations reporter at Bloomberg News, joining us uh, on the phone from Washington, D.C. Now, the SEC is supposed to unveil them today. Did I miss it, Ben? Has it happened? No, actually, uh, in just a little bit, about an hour and a half or so, uh, the commission's going to vote on this proposal. So you didn't miss it. Don't worry. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we, uh, we, should, uh, you know, we should get a better sense. You know, worth kind of keeping in mind that, uh, you know, proposals don't usually get brought before the commission unless they're going to they're gonna get the votes. Uh, five-person commission and the chairman controls the agenda. So if, if the meeting happens, uh, you know, we're probably going to get a proposal here. Take a step back. What's this all about? Yeah, so, I mean, this is really um, the SEC's bid to kind of uh, wade into this really tricky area of what brokers can and can't do in terms of conflicts of interest. Um, you, you alluded to it a little bit. Um, in 2016, the Obama administration wrote, um, the Labor Department wrote, wrote what was kind of known as the fiduciary rule. And what that did is it basically put uh, a strict requirement on brokers that deal in retirement accounts. Uh, they basically always have to put their clients first. Now, for the brokerage industry, um, you know, this, this was a big problem because they argue that the brokerage model is different than the investment advisor model, which has long had this standard. And um, they've basically said that the SEC is the place where this rule needs to happen. So this is uh, Jay Clayton, the chairman of the SEC, a Trump appointee's um, bid to kind of step into the fray here and, uh, you know, on one hand, raise the standards for, for brokers and, and their conflicts of interest. Uh, restrictions, but at the same time, um, you know, deal with some of those industry uh, concerns. Ben, do, you, do we have any idea the direction they're leaning? Um, do we have any yeah. clue what, what they're going to do? Yeah, so, I mean, I, our, our reporting indicates that we're not going to get from the SEC uh, a standard that's as strict as the fiduciary standard. Uh, we're going to get something likely that's called a best interest standard. And, you know, that's kind of totally where the devil is in the details. Uh, you know, we report uh, that what's basically going to be um, in this release, as best we can gather at this point, it's still possible it could change, is that there's going to be a bunch of restrictions put on the types of activities uh, brokers uh, can engage in, uh, things like, let's say, uh, you know, certain kinds of sales practices. But they're going to be advised against. They're not going to be outright banned. Um, and, you know, again, the, 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 the level is not going to be the fiduciary level that the industry, um, you know, has really been fighting against over the last several years. You know, but I, it, I, it is, I, let me just jump in for a second, because I've talked with some financial, you know, money managers and some that are smaller and say that these rules make it really tough for them. Um, but I just assumed that investment managers were doing, you know, putting their clients' interests first. To me, that seems like a no-brainer. It depends on which manager you're talking about. Is it a broker? By the way, there's no real clear rules as to what 
people can call themselves. Are you an advisor? Are you a money manager? But are if you're you... a registered investment advisor. RIA is a specific right. license. So that's kind of that's kind of that's a good point. I mean, but that kind of gets to the heart of what the SEC is trying to do here. So RIAs, that's correct, does have do have that fiduciary duty. They do have to put their clients ahead of them. Brokers, on the other hand, have always had what's called a suitability standard, which basically means they have to make recommendations uh, for investments that are that are suitable for their client. Which, in in effect, is you know, investor advocates will say is a is a much lower standard than. We- always putting your clients first. We like to call that don't sell Facebook IPO shares to grandma. That's the suitability (laughs) standard. (laughs) But but you bring up you bring up a good point too about the title issue and we understand that something that the SEC is also going to try to deal with here um, to to straighten this out a bit is they're gonna they're gonna try to restrict um, brokers from using ways of describing themselves that could confuse the public into thinking they're investment advisors. So that's another thing that, um, you know, has kind of been a push for a while, and it does seem like the SEC is going to address that today. And, and then you, know, you, have the, probably going to be here for, yeah. you have the issue of the hybrid broker-dealer RIAs. If you look at Merrill Lynch or any of the big firms like that, you can either be a Series 7 licensed broker, you could be a 65 RIA, you could be both. And which hat are you wearing at the moment? It's absolutely not clear to the consumer. Transparency would be nice here. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's what they're trying to get at today. You know, it's one of these issues that's been you know so so kind of fraught for so long. I think you're probably likely to see uh, people on both sides not totally happy with uh, with what comes out because um, it is really you know on one hand you have big brokers, on the other hand you have you know kind of the investor advocate community, and and I think both of the places they want to go is probably not what's going to come out today. What, um, but what, we are going to, at the end of the day, start. No, Ben, but what about things like churning? You write about this in your story, you know, where, mm-hmm. you know, brokers are making money off of, you know, doing a lot of selling and buying for their clients. I mean, are we going to get some better restrictions on some of these things? We understand that uh, the uh, what's going to be proposed, likely proposed today, um, we, ex- we, 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 we expect that there's going to be uh, – you know, kind of a move to to, to restrict uh, what's what's called you know what's called churning. Um, I, I don't think at this point we're, we're entirely clear how that's going to play out. Um, yeah. But I but I think that this is something that is going to be addressed in there, and it's something that um, you know we understand that the commission is looking at as one of the things that they want to basically raise the conduct standards for brokers because you know that's that's a problem that they've they've deemed brokerages in the past for. Can I tell you, churning was a Huge problem in the 1990s. It Not so much anymore? Like, uh, you know, the marketplace's response has been, thanks, I'm going to move to a passive indexer like BlackRock or Vanguard, and I'm taking my ball and going home. All I'm going to say is it'd be nice to know who's you know selling a product and who's giving the advice so right. that you really have some clarity. Right. Hey, Ben Bain, thank you, thank you. We'll watch for those SEC headlines. Financial regulations reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from the nation's capital. Well, I say love is mine. Uh, responsibility. When it comes to investing, it often means pulling into the ESG investment space. We want to bring in uh, Victoria Fernandez back with us. She's actually in town, Managing Director of Fixed Income at Crossmark Global Investments. It's a firm that focuses on ESG investing for its clients, and that means environmental, social, and government issues, stressing that when it comes to investment uh, making decisions. She's based in Houston, but as I said, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Nice to have you here with Barry and myself. My pleasure. You said, I don't know, you and I have had an opportunity to 
to talk several times. You know, it used to be, I feel like, ESG or doing something right in terms of your investment decisions was just kind of a niche thing, but it's become much more today. A lot of money, a lot of momentum, and a lot of returns. That's true. It has. And I think people had a, a misconception about ESG for a long time, feeling that they had to give something up in order to incorporate ESG into their portfolios. And we're finding out that that's not the case. And I think that's bringing more investors into the space than what we've seen previously. Including CalPERS, Barry. That's yeah. right. We, we were talking earlier, a billion dollars over the past year. This was once a niche invest, investment corner. It is clearly no longer niche. And especially when we look at what's taking place with generational wealth transfer and how millennials like to invest, mm -hmm. this is a lot of growth looking forward. Absolutely. And one of the things that we see the growth in the ESG space for a long time, there wasn't really a good um, definition for ESG. People, I don't think, really knew what they were getting into mm. for an ESG investment. And now that's starting to change a little bit, and people are making it a more personal issue than more of a, a general standard. And that's something that we like to focus on, really taking people's values, matching it with their personal values, with their investment values. How do you balance that with maybe some of the big macro stories that are going on there, whether it's watching what the Fed is doing, whether it's watching the news out of Washington? How do you kind of make, you know, sure. f factor that all in? So the strategy as far as how we're going to invest a portfolio stays the same, right? If it's a fixed income portfolio, we're still going to be short duration. We're going to focus on uh, corporate bonds over treasuries. That that doesn't mm -hmm. change our allocation. What we look at differently is the actual individual securities within the portfolio, and that's going to depend on what screens the client wants to utilize for so, the portfolio. So this is customized by the client. If someone comes to you and says, we have a pension fund and we're very much against fill in the blank. Right. Guns is in the news these days. Mm -hmm. um, you can construct a portfolio that is firearm free or something like that? Absolutely. And we do it both on the institutional side. Mm -hmm. Probably on the institutional side, we see more of the socially responsible type of screens coming in, a lot of religious organizations wanting that. But we also do it on the, the retail side, the separately managed account side. Um, yes, we have over 25 different screens people can choose from, what's important to them. And then we're able to take kind of a model portfolio and tweak it to match what they want. So here's the big pushback. And I don't believe this, but and I'm going to just share it with you. Um, you know, I really don't like carbon. I don't like gas. I don't like natural gas. I don't like oil. Right. Get that all out of my portfolio. And then, as an asset manager, I see oil at $67. Hey, guess right. what's happening with all the major oils? How do you manage around the possibility that a major sector of the stock market may not be represented in the portfolio. You are there in Houston. Sure, it's we are. We are in Houston. And I will say, I don't think we have too many that have that restriction <laughs> on them, at least not locally. But we really do... Um, you know, we take portfolios, we run a tracking error on them, um, we show it to the client first so that they understand what they're getting into. That's mm -hmm. really important. They understand what names are being screened out. They understand how that's going to affect the portfolio. And we um, we really take a logically consistent approach on these names. So we're not just, you know, because oil's doing much better this quarter, we're going to put that back in the portfolio because it's, you know, maybe it's not as bad of an offender as we originally thought, <laughs> right? So we can't, you know, we don't do that. We really have um, set criteria that allows us to be consistent. 
Well, it's interesting too. I was thinking about like a name like Tesla, right? That might come up on somebody who's interested in, you know, alternative vehicles uh, or electric vehicles. But yet there are lots of questions about, you know, certainly the financial viability of a name like Tesla. So what do you do with that? You know, when do the financial metrics, do they sure. always overrule everything else? So the way that we approach the investment is more of a um, screening out process. So we have our set of securities that we're comfortable with on the financial mm -hmm. side and that we would use for anybody. And then we're going to remove the names that don't fit in with the screens that you would might personally like to have in there. That's a little bit different when than having a impact portfolio where you're actively picking those kinds of stocks. I got to ask her though, because we only got about 40 seconds left here, how much new money is coming in? I'm just curious with all this volatility, do people see that as an opportunity to take advance, you know, take advantage of some of the pullbacks or what? We are seeing um, a lot of people come in and think that maybe we've kind of hit a bottom. There's some some factors in the markets that make you think that we're going to be on an upside for a little while here. So take advantage of that and finding some some sectors that benefit. Huh, that's quite fascinating. I, I keep coming back to the E, the S, and the G. Mm -hmm. How do you in 30 seconds? How do you <laughs> how do you break those down? Well, I mean, you have different screens that fall into each of them, right? So you do have the environmental components. Maybe it's a carbon issue. You have social that could have to do with human trafficking and things like that, right? And then you have the government side. And the government side really is something that any good investment should have anyway. So that's kind of built into our, our model in the beginning. Great. Cool stuff, right? I yeah. love it. Victoria, thank you. Good to see you again. My pleasure. Thanks Safe so travels. much. Victoria Fernandez, Managing Director of Fixed Income at Crossmark Global Investments, based in Houston, in our New York studio. everybody. We do want to take a look at uh, all over the world when it comes to fixed income. The Brandywine Global Opportunities Bond Fund, by the way, and the Leg Mason Brandywine Global Fixed Income Fund, beating most of its peers over the past few years. Jack McIntyre is Portfolio Manager at Brandywine Global Investment Management. $74 billion in assets under management overall at the firm, based in Philly, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Welcome back. It's great to be here. How are you doing? Um, I'm doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> How are your investments doing? Uh, knock on wood. Wood. Uh, they're actually I don't have any wood. Not I know, I'm for looking for some wood here. I don't this see is any. a wood-free yes, uh, <laughs> Although we get we back love to nature. Wood. Um, no, I think uh, hey, the, the key is the dollar. Uh, you know, we've had this view and position our portfolios that we think the dollar is going to weaken, and we think it's going to continue to weaken. And hey, we're on the same side as Trump. I think Trump at his core wants a weaker dollar, so we're riding the Trump wave. You so, are. so what does that mean in terms of fixed income? I certainly know so, what it means for exporters yeah, and yeah. things like that, but for things like the U.S. Treasury and investment-grade corporates, yeah. what does the weak dollar do? So, a couple of things. And one is, it's a you know, it's a source of returns because you can make money in in, in currencies. Um, you know, it's not just about being in bonds. Um, so, one of the things, just from a bond standpoint, I mean, there are a lot of bonds out there who are discounting too much of the way of inflation expectations. Uh, it's not core Europe, it's not U.S. Treasuries, it's the more of the emerging world. So, you know, the weaker dollar, we've got to watch out from a, uh, because it does have some inflation implications. Commodities especially. It, it does, and you know, because, and this is actually a little bit of the dilemma of what we're going through from a Trump administration, the fact that he is a um, looking at the trade deficit as a barometer of success of his administration. Because, hey, the, the economy is doing okay. The consumer is buying things. We just don't make a lot of stuff that the consumer is buying. So the trade uh, numbers are deteriorating. Mm -hmm. And so we're importing maybe a little bit more inflation. Um, but to me... Inflation or deflation? Well, no, with a weaker dollar, a little uh, bit. Import right. prices are Got up it. a little bit. It's not really working its way too much into the, the kind of the core inflation numbers. But that 
if it continues, that could be a, a source of inflation. How, how do the trade talks, so, right, so does it make you a little nervous or what? Uh, yeah, it does. I mean, okay, so it's, you know, this is an interesting environment. Because I know, it's not easy, none of this stuff. It is not. I mean, this is why, yeah. um, you know, I for the last 10 years, uh, you know, I've been more of a political analyst as opposed to just looking at underlying economies. Uh, for the last year, yeah, I hate to admit this, but the first thing I do pretty much is look at what is Trump tweeting. Um, just to get a sense we of all do. Yeah, what is it that so, you know, being a portfolio manager, you've got to figure out, OK, how do you make money for that? Uh, so trade, I think it's, it's interesting and, it, it, and it's a risk. But I think right now uh, it's the risk is diminished because I do think we're going to get um, more positive tone on NAFTA. I think we are going to reach the, the end, end zone in terms of NAFTA. I'm not sure exactly when. Uh, what worries me, though, is beyond that uh, with China, because that actually is uh, the real issue that we have to deal with. In, in terms of a trade war, in terms of tariffs, in terms of possibly in, importing <clears throat> Either deflation or inflation, depending on what else is going on. Yeah, I think the well, okay. Uh, and again, I don't want to get too negative here, <laughs> but you know, I'm not even sure it's going to be a trade war. I think we could see some type of economic cold war. Um, so that's a step up from a trade war. Right? Well, it would You're, be a hey, a trade war. That's a yeah. bigger issue. I mean, that's bigger, a that's more. a multi-decade yeah. sort of thing. That, that's uh, the trade. Uh, I think it could get resolved. I'm just not sure. Uh, you know, so if, if China opens up and let buys more goods, then that's a positive in the short run. But I think the U.S. really wants China to change its industrial policy, and that's probably that's, not going to happen. I, no, no, they do long-term planning, and they usually stick to it. And Xi's, yeah. Xi, President Xi's Jeez. in there for a while. Oh, he is. And, and they like, he has cemented that. Yeah. You know, we barely plan next month, and they're yeah. planning decades well, ahead. Yeah, all right, yeah. so having said that, if ifs and buts were candy nuts, we'd all have fun at Christmas. But So my point <laughs> is you still have to make investment decisions. Yes. So what are you doing? Where are you finding opportunities? So our base uh, theme, it's not the, the geopolitical risk, the trade risk. It's actually, hey, we look at the global economy. It's still this broad-based global growth. Okay, so it's not quite as broad and as strong growth as we saw last year, but the underlying economy is doing well. We don't see this global inventory overhang. We expect to see a ramp up in CapEx. Global consumer is still in, in good shape. So I think um, we're going to see a little bit more of an acceleration in global growth. Q1 looks like maybe it was a little uh, on the soft side, some data came in below expectations. Um, so g given that backdrop... So you have your meeting in the morning and you say, okay, team, here's where we think we should be buying. Yes. Where? Yeah. Where? Uh, why, oh, so yeah. So in, I'm sorry. Long-winded response here. <laughs> I apologize. Chase, we only have a certain so, amount of time yeah. here. So now. it's emerging world. That's, that's where uh, I still think there's a valuation anomaly. So it's Indonesia. It's Malaysia, South Africa, Mexico. What about Brazil? Uh, we're still in Brazil. You are? Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we, again, we've got to keep an eye on the political risk, not just in the U.S., but a lot of these countries are going to go through elections. What within those areas, though? So we are sovereign bonds. Uh, that's our you primary are. focus right. uh, in that the, the countries I just uh, alluded to, I think inflation is still inflation expectations. That's the key part is still pretty high. So we expect that to come down. And as that comes down, the nominal yields will decline. So we're picking up income. We expect to make money from a price appreciation and from a currency. So there's multi levers mm -hmm. to pull to generate returns. So given the giant fiscal stimulus that was yeah. just passed in December and the recent shortage of, of high quality sovereigns around mm -hmm. the world, uh, and in the United States, uh, how how do you look at um, both the issuance of treasuries in the United States and and whether there's any value there? Yes, uh, that's a great question because 
on the surface, you say, wow, you know, supply and demand, your, your Econ 101, hey, they're issuing more supply, but I just don't, you know, it reminds me of the 80s, the, the crowding out argument, when we started running these big budget deficits. Uh, what did rates do? Well, they can, they, they just went lower and lower. So 30 I don't, years. I don't, <laughs> yeah, so I, uh, I don't think that in and of itself is going to get Treasury yields higher. I mean, maybe it's keeping a Treasury yields elevated relative to core Europe. I mean, that's a nice, juicy spread mm-hmm. between those, those two, um, particularly uh, German bonds. Um, what would get Treasury yields m- moving higher is cyclical inflation moving higher. This growth, the fiscal stimulus getting traction, uh, wages continue to move higher. But and I've talked about this before. Um, just don't forget about the secular disinflationary influences mm-hmm. because they're going to keep a lid on how high the cyclical inflation can move. And that's everything from globalization to automation. To yeah. Like- and I actually, from a technology standpoint, it's automation. Uh, it's the competitive environment, the Amazon effect. That's probably the best way to describe it. But even, you know, there's technological advances. Because imagine where oil prices would be today without uh, shale you know, mm-hmm. in the U.S. I mean, it would be a lot higher. It'd be probably taking the global economy, maybe not into a recession, but clearly slowing so- down. So it's keeping a lid on oil prices. So that's not necessarily going to funnel through into inflation. And then it's debt. And demographics. So we were speaking in an earlier segment about we've been waiting for this wage pressure yeah. for many, many quarters, and each quarter it seems, okay, each month, here it is, and then not so much. How, how yeah. do you look at the lack of aggressive uh, rise in income? In about 15 seconds. Okay, so I think, you know, somewhere there are, there are people... I'm going to teach them to do it. Yeah. <laughs> to do, okay, yeah. There's On the side, because we are somehow, we're dragging in more and more bodies into the labor market. Mm-hmm. So that that's keeping a, a little bit of a lid on wage pressures. And also, um, I just don't think wage pressures actually are going to flow through to inflation. Labor is not that strong. Private union memberships are I down, know. et cetera. So, that's what I said. Um, the unions don't have the leverage no. that they used to. Pro- Always but, fun. Jack okay. McIntyre at Brandywine Global Investment Management joining us right here on Bloomberg Radio. Uh, Born to be Wild is getting a little crazy when it comes to uh, traffic, and we're not just talking about cars. Great story uh, out on the Bloomberg. It has to do with uh, the great scooter boom, and we have cities that are kind of beating back uh, at Silicon Valley as a result of this. If you don't know what I'm talking about, don't go anywhere. Joshua Brustein is with us, technology writer at Bloomberg Business Week in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. The great scooter boom. What are we, what are we talking about? Well, if you haven't been paying attention for the last couple of weeks, <laughs> or if you, you don't live on the it. West Coast, <laughs> exactly. Um, basically, these are electric scooter sharing companies, and the idea is to have electric scooters that um, they go about 15 miles an hour. Just kind of drop them off around town. You have download a smartphone app. You can use that app to unlock the scooter, ride it to where you want to go, jump off the scooter, and leave it leaning against a wall. It's kind of like city bikes, right? The sharing of the bicycles that we see in like major cities? Yeah, it's kind of like the next incarnation of uh, bike sharing with city bikes. There is a dock where you would put it. One of the reasons that the scooter, one of the appeals of the scooters is that you can just leave them wherever you're going. That's also been one of the downsides because it means that they sort of end up all over the place. It's like the teenager, Barry, that leaves everything just kind of anywhere that's and, r- and everywhere. That's right. <laughs> I, I kind of like the context of, of this story as Uber deja vu suddenly... <laughs> A new form of transportation appears in cities, and the local government really didn't get a heads up and really didn't weigh in on this. How is that impacting how these companies are operating? 
It is worth pointing out that uh, Bird, one of the two biggest companies, the um, the chief executive is a former em- executive for both Uber and Lyft. Uh, the chief lo- uh, legal officer there is also a Lyft veteran. So they they are coming from this world. And, and basically what they say is, you know, we read the law. We decided there was nothing keeping us from doing this. So let's do it and see what happens. Well. Oh, go ahead, Barry. Sorry. Uh, uh, better to beg forgiveness than ask permission, <laughs> apparently. Uh, so there's a lot of pushback to this, but let me remind everybody that when bicycles first started coming into the city and we started building bike lanes in, in major urban areas, there was a ton of pushback at, about that. Is this along those same lines, or are these things really a hazard? Are they hitting pedestrians? Are they just being strewn all over San Francisco. What What's the real beef about this? I definitely think the perspective from the companies is that this is a area of growing pains, that there's um, concern about something that's unfamiliar, and that people are basically looking for some reason to complain. They'll say, for the most part, people are really excited to use this. They're just not as loud about it as the people who are complaining. And certainly with bike sharing and with bikes in general, you see once some once the kind of routine of the streets changes, it really riles people up. So sure. there's some of that going on for we sure. We think this is a problem. Wait till the drones come. I mean, <laughs> I'm just saying. No, I mean, is it just a case of, yeah, it's a new industry. We're figuring it out. Maybe at some point we're going to have a place where we put the scooters. It's a little bit more organized. Um, I mean, officials aren't saying, uh, Joshua, that we don't want them. Yeah, I think uh, the point here, and one of the reasons there's been a lot of criticism, is that this has been a typical Silicon Valley rollout in that there was a, an idea that let's use San Francisco as a beta test for our new product. We'll put it out here, and there will be problems, but we can deal with them as they happen. Mm-hmm. And those problems, um, not everyone who's in that test agreed to be a tester, and, and so they don't see why they should have to go through these problems. The city officials say, you know, why didn't you come to us and work out some way to deal with this. Because then and we never get it launched. That is exactly what the companies say. <laughs> there competitors is, would jump. There's ahead. another There's another um, layer to this, though, which is that these problems in San Francisco, they were pretty foreseeable considering that um, these services have been launched in several other cities, and they've had the exact same complaints. So the companies knew this was coming. Mm-hmm. So, so what's the appeal of these little electric sco- scooters? Does it substitute for a missing... Um, form of transportation? Are they really all that green? Why would uh, any company think, I know, little electric scooters strewn everywhere? Yeah. So the basic idea here is that um, companies want to find a way to get people out of private automobiles that they Mm -hmm. drive everywhere. And Uber and Lyft were seen as kind of the first step in that direction. But there's a lot of thing, a lot of cases in which taking an Uber or a Lyft is not convenient. If you got to go eight tenths of a mile in downtown right. San Francisco, that's going to take you maybe 20 minutes in a car. But if there's a scooter, you can take it, and it'll take you five minutes. And so, um, the idea is to kind of weave together a new way of getting around with a bunch of these different services combined. I see a lot of people, too, just even go to my train, that they'll scooter to their train, and it might be, you know, a few, a few minutes from their home or a minute from their home, so they'll, they'll ride their scooter. It's small enough that you can, you know, their own portable scooters, and then just kind of get on the train and then finish their trip. Right, exactly. Combination thing. And I do think there's a, there, there is a thought that, you know, companies will offer a range of these services. 
Uber bought a bike sharing company recently, mm -hmm. so it is thinking this way. And maybe what you have is a subscription to a service that's ride sharing, car sharing, scooters, etc. You have options. Are you ready to get on a scooter, Barry? Uh, no. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> I'll get on I a motorcycle. Have. Joshua, you're ready, right? I'll take one for a ride. <laughs> I agree. Joshua Brewstein, technology writer, Bloomberg Businessweek. Check him out on Twitter at Joshua Brewstein. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please. I'll do the driving. Drive home. Excuse me. I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk the music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. All right, everybody, time for the drive to the close on this Wednesday. Carol Master along with Barry Ritholtz. Brad McMillan, Chief Investment Officer at Commonwealth Financial Network. $156 billion in assets under management. Brad with us on the phone from Waltham, Massachusetts. That's where the company is based. So, Brad, if I use a traffic light as a reference point, you've taken your overall market indicator to a yellow light yield. What does it really mean and how come? It really means that risk is risen, but we don't need to stop just yet. Up here in Boston, we drive a little bit crazy. We get that. So a yellow light act doesn't, shouldn't mean speed up, but here it does. But that's not what I mean. Just slow down and take a look. New York, it totally means speed up, I'm just saying. But just be really <laughs> careful. Um, I, so are you saying that the market move up overall can continue with a bunch of volatility or what? That's a pretty good statement. I mean, what we saw recently was we saw the President of the United States and the leader of China come out and say a trade war is a real possibility. Now, okay, that's, that's theater at this point. The market's figured that out, and it's moved back up. But at the same time, I think risks have risen. And we've seen some technical breakdowns. You know, we broke the 200-day moving average. Not a lot, but we did. And we're looking at a bunch of factors that are starting to weaken. And that, to me, says, yes, it means go forward, but now a higher degree of caution is appropriate. Now, when I like the 10-month moving average as opposed to the 200-day don't we get a lot of false signals on, on that particular um, technical line? I, I agree with that, actually. And when I say 200-day, it's kind of the same thing to me as a 10-month. What I do is I look at the 200-day, and if it month-end, it's broken, then that's a time to pay attention. But nonetheless, the 200-day does say, hey, pay attention, and that's where we are. So what do you think of this bounce back that we've been enjoying the past couple of days? Is this we're back over the 50 day? I know a lot of traders look at that. How significant are the technicals at this level or does the next news cycle make all this go away? It could make it all go away. I could certainly see going back to green, but we don't know that yet. And a lot depends on what happens with trade. But the real the real story here is the dog that didn't bark. You know, as I was saying, we have the real possibility of a trade war, and yet the market is continuing to move higher. That, to me, says we need to be cautious, but the trend remains upwards. Earnings are saying what to you right now? We're early in on the game. I understand that, but we have heard from the big financials and a few other big players. The real story for earnings is they're great. They're wonderful. We knew that. But it doesn't matter. 
Okay, you look at financials, for example, we've seen terrific earnings and we've seen them pull back. My question here is twofold for earnings. Does it mean that no matter how good earnings are, the market is not going to be driven higher? Thus far, it seems like the market is willing to rise on that, but we're seeing signs to the contrary. The other question I have for earnings is going to be in the calls. If companies actually start referring to trade issues as a real as a real possibility, that could bring it back into reality. Again, that's something we haven't seen yet, but that's something I'm watching. But right now, I think the question is, are, is it going to drive the market up? And I think so far, the evidence is mixed. So let's talk about those financials because they're a perfect perfect example. A huge chunk of what we're looking at going forward in financial earnings are a result of the uh, of the recent tax reform. Is sure. that perhaps a reason why yesterday we had a very strong day? Financials were the only sector in the red. What should we make of the impact of tax reform? And you know, is the growth real, real, or is it you know juiced? Well, it's not. The growth is real today, but the question is, is it going to be real tomorrow? We're not going to get another tax bill next year, as at least so I think right now. You know, we'll see. <laughs> right. So we're not going to see companies. We're not going to see companies pulling back. You know, t- billions of dollars from abroad and doing buybacks. A lot of the good news has been pulled back, and now we're getting it today. And I think the future growth rolling over. That's the real issue, and that may be why we're not seeing more positive response. I mean, how much with financials do you credit just the run-up, a tremendous run-up that we had in those financial names? I'm just doing some math here. Um, uh, you know, I think I saw some numbers at least above like 15% or 20% in some of these financials from low to high, like late last year till kind of early this year. I mean, is it just a case that the news was good, but just not as good you know, to kind of justify the move up that we've already seen? Well, I think it's a question of, is it possible for the news to be good enough to justify the run-up? You know, I think we've discounted all of the good news out there. I think we've discounted all of the good news that anybody can think of. And so when reality comes in, it's it's a little bit disappointing, as good as it is. Mm. And that's exactly when you see the market, you know, really as far ahead of itself as it can get. Hmm. So, So despite the really strong earnings... You're not especially enthusiastic. Uh, what would turn that yellow light to green? I'd like to see consumer spending start to pick up again. We've seen consumer spending pull back, and that to me says economic growth is going to be compromised. I'd like to see business invest. You know, we've seen business confidence rise. We haven't seen investment respond. In other words, we're not seeing the growth follow the confidence levels. And I think that's another sign that maybe things are as good as they get. I mean, when you look at earnings, what we're really saying is maybe this is as good as it gets. And right now we're seeing that in the economy, too. I need to see that change in the economy before I'd expect that to change in earnings. A recession on the horizon anytime soon, in your view? Just got about uh, 20 seconds here. Not, not in the next year or so. All of the things that I look at are still in the green zone, although they're starting to roll over a bit. All right, interesting. Yellow light. All right, Brad McMillan, Chief Investment Officer, Commonwealth Financial Network, $156 billion in assets under management on the phone from Waltham, Massachusetts. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.